This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, instead of jetting around Europe, we are ambling around Missouri to visit with the four artists who are this month's Missouri Arts Council's featured artists. We have a musician in Vienna who won a national songwriting competition with the first song he wrote on his return to music. A jeweler and stylist in St. Louis who creates fashionable art and had one of her creations catch the eye of the world's biggest pop star. A portrait artist in Kansas City who works way beyond life-size and a fibre artist right here in Columbia who is a master of texture and volume. So let's get on the road. First stop today, Vienna, Missouri. Many musicians spend their whole careers exploring or defining one particular musical genre. Others, like my next guest, move fluidly between overlapping genres and in so doing help to define a style that is unique to the geography that inspires it. Singer-songwriter Mick Bird moves seamlessly between blues, roots, rock, country and his own interpretation of Ozark blues. He performs as a solo musician, a duo and with the Backroad Band, who are not only well-known across Missouri and the Midwest, but whose musical tentacles stretch across the country and as far as Ireland. Mick Bird's musical accolades are manifold. For over 20 years, he has been playing at Nashville's Bluebird Cafe, a venue with a worldwide reputation for hosting and helping to launch the careers of many artists, including Garth Brooks, Faith Hill and Taylor Swift. He has released 11 CDs and a special CD which benefited Special Olympics Missouri. His music was featured on NPR's Car Talk and his musical career got started with an award from Billboard magazine. He's a member of the Missouri Blue Society and the Tennessee Songwriters Association International. And in between his storied music career, he was a high school social studies teacher and a sports coach. And he is certainly no stranger to KOPN audiences. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mick. Well, thank you, Diana. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. What a life. Have you been in the right place at the right time or have hard work and persistence been the hallmarks of your career? I would answer that question by saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of everything. (laughs) I, I think it's a combination of both. You know, if you love what you do, it's really not work, but there has been a lot of time and a lot of effort to put into my music and uh, in setting up the interview today, I know that you well know how important Debbie is to the function of of our music business. She's a technology gal, she's a social media gal, and the marketing gal, and we're we're pretty much a duo project, and I appreciate her efforts. Without it, it wouldn't be possible. And Debbie is your wife. I was going to ask you about her a bit later on, but... In a career of so many highlights and and such plenty, what have been some of the outstanding moments for you? Wow. Uh, I would say probably more than anything else, the smiles on people's faces and a few good tunes well played, uh, as my song A Few Good Tunes says, the feedback that I get from the audience, uh, no matter where we play or where I play, 
is really the fuel to my fire. And if you want to say what are highlights, every time that I know that my performance has brought some joy and maybe a little introspection and a, a little life philosophy to the people I play for, that's a highlight. But pretty much I think, Diana, and at this time when there seems to be so many things that divide us in the current world, it's a wonderful thing to have music to bring us all back together. And that relationship in between the musician and the songwriter and the audience that that's a precious thing to me. And every time I play, when I feel that, that's a highlight. Your father came from a musical family and he was a pianist who passed his love of music on to you. But it was the guitar, not the piano, in which you found your musical voice. Tell us about your dad and how he influenced your musical ear. When my dad uh, was a young man, he was a jazz pianist in Kansas City and uh, played at a lot of the venues way back in the day that Kansas City was known for. He had a great love of music, and halfway through his life, he shut that down in order to have a more ordinary life with my mom. And he was never happy, Diana. Mm. And that's a mistake that I'm not ever going to make. I know music is a large part of who I am, and I'm not going to deny that part of myself for any sense of normalcy. I'm about as normal now as I'm going to get, and bless (laughs) Debbie's heart, she understands it. Well, I mean, you played in bands when you were in high school and college, but then it wasn't until your late 30s that you returned to music. So you walked away from it for a little while and you came back to it because of a car accident. Tell us a little bit about that return to music. Well, actually, that was a misprint in one of the local papers. I played in a band in high school, uh, played in a moderately successful rock band in in college called Jade, and we played a lot in the Ozarks in southern Missouri. After we uh, all graduated, we went our separate ways, and I got heavily involved in athletics and in teaching. I decided in college I wanted to do something that I would enjoy, so that became a, a certification as a history teacher, and I've coached basically every sport they have at Vienna High School, and I taught for 31 years. I coached for 40 years. Uh, I'm proud of every minute that I spent For the last 20 or so of those, Debbie and I have also had a very busy music business, but that's always been on the side. When I was in my late 30s, I suffered a really serious knee injury playing basketball, and that kind of laid me up for a while. It wasn't a car accident. And while I was sitting around feeling sorry for myself, I picked up the guitar and I started to write songs again. The songwriting aspect of music has always attracted me, and I decided to pick up the guitar at age 38 and write some songs. And uh, we decided to go out on a limb and record a CD and see if anybody was interested. I was a member of the Missouri Society of Songwriters and Musicians. And there I met a studio owner and producer from Southern Missouri who was willing to take on this rookie project. And luckily, Diana, I wrote Afternoon at the Wall about an experience that we had touring Washington, D.C. and going to the extremely powerful Vietnam Veterans Memorial, uh, one of the most moving places that I've ever been. And I was fortunate enough to be recognized by Billboard magazine for writing that song. And that gave me a little shred of credibility. And 30 years later, here we are. Well, let's take a little listen to a clip from that song that really started or restarted your musical career in your late 30s. This is Afternoon at the Wall from Mick Bird's 1996 album called No Frills. 
I rode this bus from Illinois to see my father's name inscribed. The empty eyes and the vacant stairs, maybe none of them survived. Broken hearts and broken lives, broken bodies rolling by. Some salute. And some they pray, some just close their eyes and cry. The teardrops hit the pavement, and I count them as they fall. An afternoon at the wall. So, how did Afternoon at the Wall end up? receiving a Billboard magazine award. How did they hear about it? What was that process? We entered a songwriting contest and it won a a national award in their songwriting contest. Billboard in those days had probably the most prestigious songwriting contest going and you paid them 30 bucks and sent them a song and that's (laughs) what we did. Well, let me ask you about your songwriting. What for you constitutes a well-written song? That's a wonderful question, Diana. I think a well-written song splits the difference in between reaching the largest number of people possible, but not sinking to the lowest common denominator, if that makes any musical sense to you. If you write songs like everybody else, then why should anyone listen to you? They've already heard that. So I think there needs to be some uniqueness, There needs to be some originality, but also it has to be in a form, if you want to write for other people's enjoyment, it has to be in a form and a genre and a style that is accessible to people. And obviously, I think we all shoot for how do you reach people? How does this song make your audience feel? Does it elicit an emotional response from them in any way? And just the right amount of subtlety. I think is what makes a song very interesting and unique and fun to listen to. When I first started writing songs, I think I sort of hung out in the deep and dark. And that's not really a way to gain people's uh, attention over the long term. As years have gone by, I've gravitated to more and more up-tempo blues because it's fun. And I sneak in a meaningful ballad once in a while, but not too often. There is a a line on your website about how, as a native of the Missouri Hills, you bring new truth and a new sound to Ozark music. Talk to me about that new truth. Upon what truths are you shining in musical light that weren't hitherto there? I think that any music to survive and to be integral and important to people has got to have some integrity. And I would hope that people get when I write a song, Diana, and we perform it. And I want to give a shout out to my band members who are wonderful musicians and, and, and great friends in, in their own right. Brad Edwards, race builder, Dennis Lane Schubert. We spend a lot of time reaching audiences with what we think is honesty. And for me, My genre is Ozark blues, and I usually define Ozark blues as a little bit of uptown and a whole lot of down home. 
I think it is a synthesis of genres. It's a synthesis of sounds that I hope my listeners will always enjoy half as much as I enjoy playing them. But let's listen to another clip of music on the way out. Last year, you released not one, but two albums, a seven-song rock-focused EP titled Shadow on the Sun and a 12-song country and country blues CD titled Goodnight Tonight. Now, this is a track called Summer Rain from Goodnight Tonight. Tell us about it quickly and then we'll take a listen. We play across the country and no matter where we go, I always try to take a good bit of Missouri with me. And there's nothing more Missouri than a summer rain. There certainly isn't. Well, here it is, Summer Rain by Mick Bird. Summer midnight Darker than lit Clouds swallow the moonlight Too hot Catch your breath. I remember the witch sounding against my window pane. Serene, listening to the summer rain. All oh, we were young. Songwriter Mick Bird on his website at mickbird.com, and that's Bird spelt B Y R D. And if you want to see him play live, you are in luck as he will be playing at the Gumbo Bottoms Ale House in Jefferson City tomorrow night, and he'll be at the Columbia Farmers Market at 3 p.m. next Wednesday, May the 25th, and at Columbia's Dive Bar on Friday, June the 3rd, and at the Pierpont General Store here in Columbia on Saturday, June the 4th. Mick, thank Thank you so much for making time to chat. It has been a delight hearing about your musical journey. Thank you, Diana. And I certainly want to thank all the folks in independent radio, KOPN in Columbia and KKFI in particular, have been extremely valuable in helping my independent music career. And we all plan on rocking on. Once upon a time... On the north side of St. Louis, there was a little girl who sat at her artisan father's feet and watched him work. One of the things he made were fishing sinkers and the little girl would take those fishing sinkers down to the fishing bank and sell them. And her daddy would tell her, be sure you make money on these. So she followed his advice. She sold them for 50 cents and gave her daddy a quarter. Today, that little girl is Yoro Newson, a renowned jewellery designer in St. Louis, whose creations have appeared on the TV show Zoe Ever After, starring the singer Brandy, on the film set of An Intimate Christmas, as well 
well as on many red carpets and in a multitude of fashion shows, boutiques and galleries and in a ton of print publications. She is also a wardrobe stylist, a set creator and this past February had her first solo fashion art exhibit titled Artifacts, not only focusing on the past 10 years of her work but also celebrating her mother, Dorothy May Harris, who passed away in 2016. She is also Vice President of St. Louis's Pink Muse Studios and she holds down a full-time job as a community health worker and she is my next guest this evening. Yoro, what a pleasure to have you on this week's show. Hi, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. How do you find time to do so much creating and work a full-time job and you're a mom? (laughs) Do you ever sleep? And I cook. No, I do not sleep. I am a vampire. Thank you very much. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, I just still away. I still away. I do what I need to do. I do what has been embedded in me to do, which is create. (laughs) Your work is spectacularly bold and shiny. It's often more like a layer of clothing than jewelry. And I imagine that if Cleopatra were alive today, she'd have you on speed dial. (laughs) Oh, my God. Inspires your work? You know, I think fashion itself is like the first connective tissue and colors. Uh, I love golds. I love metals. Like you said in my intro, that was so beautiful. My father worked with metals and I think metal working has really kind of gotten me started when I started working with him as a small child. So, I mean, I love that story about your father inspiring and you not only the desire to be an artist and create, but also the importance of combining artistic talent with entrepreneurship, which is something that a lot of creative people really struggle with. So tell us a little bit about your daddy. Oh, my God. My father, Willie, Mr. Willie, that's what everybody called him in the neighborhood, but I called him Papa. He was what we call back in the day a hustler. He would take cans. We would go collect cans. And he had a full-time job that made, and he made good money. But he found beauty and doing things for the community. But he he was just an amazing man, a visionary, um, someone who showed me that I did not have to just be compartmentalized in a work setting, that I can do other things besides go to work and come home and go to sleep. <laughs> Describing you as a jeweler feels like we're really missing a large part of the picture because whilst, yes, you design sparkly adornments, you take the idea of jewellery to the next level. You write that you are dubbed the fashionable artist. Explain what that means (laughs) to you. Well, because I mix found objects to make jewellery, I mix non-traditional objects to make garments to make wearable things that you wouldn't typically wear you may go to an avant-garde party and you may wear it but they're more for like art galleries showcasings like if someone had a big event at their hotel things that they might put in their lobby just as you know visual interest so dubbing myself and being dubbed the uh, fashionable artist that's where that came from because i mix fashion non-traditional clothing because I don't I don't sew I don't make clothes but 
I could make a skirt out of a trash bag in an instant. But that's <laughs> that's kind of how that came about. Well, one of the things that does set your work apart is your desire to breathe new life into recycled or thrift items. So you want to create something from nothing or at least something that was about to be nothing. You've reclaimed it. What have been some of your best finds and how did you take them from trash to treasures? I did a event called the Garbage Bag Gala here in St. Louis. And I was thinking, oh my God, I could be a participant. I can make this fabulous jewelry piece and have these models wear it. And they shut that down real quick. They said, no, you have to make a garment out of duct tape. And I was like, what? A garment? First of all, I know nothing about pattern design. I know nothing about sewing. You know, I can sew a hem, but that's about it. But it pushed me into doing something with garments. So I took duct tape. The duct tape company provided all these different colors of duct tape, and it was actually a contest showcase. And I have never done this before. I had to create two garments different from each other, so I couldn't use like the same roll of duct tape or the same idea. I had to do two completely different things, and I won second place. That was exciting. There is a piece of jewelry on the jewelry page of your website, which is yorocreations.wixsite.com, which is super colorful. There's three swirling, bejeweled, interlinked, kind of leaf shaped pieces in pinks and blues and rose and sea foam and diamante set around <laughs> three what look like kind of smoky quartz stones. I would definitely wear that. Tell me the history <laughs> of that piece. That piece was created by some found objects and I was commissioned to do a piece for a singer here in St. Louis and she said I'm bold I need something big and bold and I'm like okay so I kind of compiled those pieces in a style where it was gonna grace her neck fall good and, and pretty on her dress and it came out so well I was just really surprised Bold, big pieces are like one of my favorite things to do, as you can see on the website. <laughs> I read somewhere that your jewelry has been worn by the Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. Is that true? <gasps> oh, my God. Yes. How yes, did yes. that come about? Okay. Okay. So this is what happened. I had a friend who was going to the concert and my friend said, hey, I need to borrow something really bold and fun. Well, this friend of mine wanted to wear a crown. It was actually a crown that I created. And my friend wore this crown and got called into the beehive pit. So my friend was like somewhere way far away and she noticed the crown and had her people go get my friend, put this person in the beehive pit and she saw the crown. They handed it to her. She put it on her head and cursed him. <laughs> and bow to him and put the crown back on his head and he died okay he really literally died <laughs> he died no he's alive and well he's good <laughs> so that's how that came to be came to be no pun intended <laughs> but it was filmed there's a Getty's picture of it there's all kind of pictures of it but that was a highlight of my life she hasn't called yet but my phone is open Beyonce if you hear me if you're listening I hope you put your number like on the inside of it maybe she doesn't have your number maybe she's desperately looking for you exactly exactly but yeah that's how that came to be it was totally a surprise but it was a beautiful moment I'll, I'll never forget it so earlier this year you had your first solo fashionable art exhibit but you didn't want it to be just a fashion show with models on a runway you wanted the event to have 
have a purpose. Tell us about that purpose. The art exhibit was called Artifacts, where art and fashion and purpose collides. The purpose was the fact that my parents, both of my parents passed away from heart disease. My mom and dad had a massive heart attack and passed away instantly. And I wanted to bring awareness in the month of February, because it was February the 28th. Um, it's Black History Month. It's the Heart Health Month. It's heart the month of love. And all those things wrapped into one. I wanted to put it also in this art exhibit. I didn't want it to, like you said, I didn't want it to just be about models traipsing up and down a runway. I could have done that. I could have done it big time. I made it a free event because I wanted people to be able to freely give to the American Heart Association, which I do have a link in my mom's name. It's called Dorothy's Baby. That's what she used to call me, Dorothy's Baby. This Dorothy's Baby right here and everybody that would see me and say, oh, that's Dorothy's Baby. I never had a name. That was my name, Dorothy's <laughs> Baby. <laughs> and so it was to pay homage to her and others. And true story behind that day, I had a cousin that came to the event. She made a $100 donation to the cause. A week later, she passed away from a heart attack. Oh. Yes. So me trying to get the word out about heart health meant that much more to me. Mm. And just because February the 28th, 2022 is gone, that event is going to carry on. I wasn't going to do it again, but I think every year that's going to be a yearly thing for me. Artifacts will be a yearly thing because of my cousin passing away. And uh, it makes me sad, but in another way, it makes me happy that I see that fashion, art, and purpose really did collide. And it can make a difference because one thing about art it doesn't matter whose art it is or what the art is. It demands attention. It demands attention. Any piece that I make, it demands attention. And that is my intention because I want to talk to people like we're talking now. I want to tell people how it happened, why it happened. And part of that is just the makeup of how and why I do what I do. As well as your own business and all of this creating that you do yeah. and asking people to pay attention to art and, and the causes. You also work with Pink Muse Studio. And in both instances, part of your focus is on not only being able to share your own passion, but also to show others that they can do it too, especially black designers, okay. because as in most of the arts, of course, it is white voices that dominate in that role of inspiring others. How much is your role about simply instilling confidence versus mentoring and opening doors? Well, I think that a lot of people, I hear it all the time. Oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I don't have a creative bone. And I just want to smack their lips and say, <laughs> shut up. Yes, you do. <laughs> One of my catchphrases is we were all created by the creator to be creative. And because of that, you do have a creative bone in your body. Some people just don't know where it is. They don't know how to fulfill it. So with Pink Muse, what we inspire to do is that inspire to do. We saw a niche that was not being fulfilled, which is the black and brown voices of fashion, especially in St. Louis. 
So we're going to be part of solutions everywhere we go. And as we go, we're paving a way for others to come through so they don't have such a hard time as we did. Before we close, Yoro, what is coming up for you that is filling your creative heart with joy and anticipation? Oh, Lord. Okay. I think we need about 20 more minutes now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, as you said and before, I'm a wardrobe stylist. So I have a couple of artists that I'm styling for a couple of events that's coming up in St. Louis. St. Louis Fest, which is this Saturday. And then Intersection, which is a musical interlude with Erica Baidu is coming. Um, local artists will be there. It's going to be a big collage, amalgamation of artists near and far. And I'm personally styling one of the artists there. But I think some of the funnest things that I'm having coming up is I am lead over a ad campaign for an eyewear maker here in St. Louis. And she's like, I need a whole brand makeover. I need this. I need that. And so... That's coming down the pike. I'm excited about that one. Almost the most. Well, to see more of Yoro's fashionable art on the catwalk and on the pages of Glossy Magazines, go to her website, yorocreations.wixsite.com or just Google Yoro Creations. Yoro, I so appreciate your time and thank you so much for sharing a little of your artistic journey with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited and I'm honored. Thank you. Sheila's face is over seven and a half feet tall and five feet wide. She stares impassively out of the canvas, not smiling, but almost Mona Lisa-like in her regard for her viewer. Sheila is flanked by Mikey, also seven foot eight inches tall. He is bespectacled and has a goatee and seems to have a question on his mind. These are just two of the monumental portraits by Kansas City-based artist Benjamin Parks, who seeks to capture moments of emotional intimacy, of glimpses beyond the visible landscape of his subjects' faces to the inner life beyond. And as much as you, the viewer, feel like you want to ask them a question, in almost all of his portraits, there is an inherent challenge back from the subject – His large-scale portraits have just finished a three-month exhibit at the Albrecht Kemper Museum in St. Joseph, alongside the work of another artist. Plus, more of his work is currently on display through May the 27th at the Stocksdale Gallery at William Jewell College in Liberty. And he's also a musician and singer-songwriter in the indie folk band of Tree with his wife, violinist Laurel Morgan Parks. Ben, I am so thrilled to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Did you try painting small and it was unsatisfactory or have you been a go big or go home painter from the get go? (laughs) You know, I painted all sizes. I just found as I was developing my style early in life, I really liked to paint large. The physicality of doing it just seemed to, to suit me better. And I always really enjoy seeing large works. So it it just kind of happened. I still will paint small, you know, with commissions and things like that. They're a little bit smaller. But if I had my preference, I I would work in the five foot to seven foot range always. It just seemed to suit me for some reason. <laughs> I love the Mona Lisa-esque enigma that you capture in your portraits. And that sense that as much as we want to ask the portraits, who are you? They each seem to have a question for us that's just kind of slightly hidden behind their faces. What is your intent with your paintings? Well, I, I like the way you put that, that you know, there's something hidden there. That's 
part of the goal, actually, the intent is to really just find a real moment. So I start each painting, especially on these larger pieces, doing a photo shoot. And I can sometimes I can get a good reference photo or two from 50 photos, but sometimes it can take two or 300 or more shots. And through that process, I'm just trying to break down that barrier that people have sometimes, especially when they're in front of a camera or are in front of someone they don't know. So it can happen with live drawing and live paintings as well. It takes some time to really break down that barrier, it, whether that's putting on a front, feeling, you know, feeling a little bit weird about being a painting in that moment or being in front of a camera in that moment. People get nervous, maybe fake smile, you know, fake chuckle, things like that. And really the whole process for me while setting up the composition of the painting and getting that down is to really break through. And I know it's starting to happen. Um, people kind of start to get really embarrassed and then they get nervous and then they kind of get angry. <laughs> and that's when I know it's about to happen. If it doesn't happen right away, I, they always need to be a little, a little upset. Not like too, too angry, but just a little upset and irritated. And then there's a resignation that falls. And it's just like, okay, I'm here. This is the moment. This is the air we're breathing. And this is who I am. And I think when someone looks like that, is really in that moment, and they give you that look, it is kind of a question. It is like, this is who I am. Who are you? And it's, it's an honest moment. It's a little bit different for everyone. And the process of getting there is usually different for everyone as well. But that's the whole point is to to break through barriers and into something real like the realest of the real do you allow your subjects to choose the photograph which you are going to base this seven by five foot painting of them on because you know when you have your photograph taken, there might be 199 that you hate and only one that you like. Do you give people that chance to say, yeah, that one? Or is it over to you, the artist, at that point? I usually choose. Sometimes I'll run it by them fairly quickly in camera just to to make sure that they're okay with it. Because I'll usually know when it's happening. Like There's usually two or three shots where I can just see in their eyes that they've dropped their guard and... 99% of the time when I'm like, this is what I think I'm going to use, they're like, okay, that makes sense. Because I feel like when a subject is in that real moment, it is um, it is something that looks like them and represents them well and is just inherently flattering because you're breaking through to some sort of inner soul that uh, can't help but would be flattering. So it's never really been an issue. When I'm doing commissions, uh, especially in this style, usually they're around three feet, four feet up. Obviously, I'll be a little bit more cautious of letting the the subject choose or sign off just to make sure. Some of the people whose portraits you paint are not necessarily well known to you. Others are close family members. And in both cases, you are painting to some degree your own perception, that moment that you see a breakthrough of that person's emotional inner life. Sometimes maybe you have more insight into your subject. Talk to me about imagining versus knowing and how that affects your painting, people you don't know versus people you do know. Yeah, in a lot of ways it can be different, but really when it's 
successful and I know I'm on the right track, it's exactly the same. Because, you know, looking at someone's real spirit, it doesn't really matter if I know them or not. So to get to that point, it's it's the same for everyone, which is interesting because I I've been working on my family series for quite a few years that was at the Albright Kemper Museum. And I've done a lot of people that I don't really know that I've maybe only met one or two times ever. But I, I found it was almost exactly the same. Because as I'm doing the painting, I'm breaking it down into different sections. And I really have to do an intense meditative process of not thinking about the whole subject matter because they're so large and to keep everything vibrant and to keep everything realistic and broken down into an interesting composition, I really just take small sections at a time. So I'm working on the facial planes, which could be a shadow or a light or just different details that become miniature sections or miniature paintings of the painting for each one. And I don't know I'm ever done with the painting until I can't prove it anymore. And the sense comes over me that I don't really know how I painted it. And I don't know who painted it. So it becomes almost impersonal to me. And that's when I know it's done. It's like, how did this happen? And who did this? How do you choose the people who you don't know? If someone asks me to be a painting, they don't want to commission. They just want to be a subject. I'll always say yes. And so I just have a repository of imagery from photo shoots. Also, sometimes if there's someone I have a connection with, whether it's someone who's a friend that I do know, I'll paint them. Or, you know, if someone's inspiring some way, I'll paint them as well. But usually it's someone who either asks directly or hints around at it. And I'm like, okay, let's let's do a photo shoot. And then I just kind of let it sit for a while. I rarely ever paint someone right away. It's it's usually like a year or two later at least that I'll actually do the painting until it just starts kind of bouncing around in my head. It's like, okay, I need to do this piece. You use a grid underneath your painting so that your compositions are accurate and to the right ratio. Mm-hmm. But you allow that grid to be transparent. And in many of those grid squares are little letters. Tell us about those letters. Yeah, the letters are actually specific to the show that was at the Albright Kemper Museum. And those are all my family members, brothers, sisters, and parents, and my son, and myself as well. So it's unique to those pieces. And actually, the letters, it fills up all of the, the grid spaces, but it's it actually forms a message to each person. So at the end of the painting, I will carve letters into the background, which is just solid white, and then I'll write over the top of the painting in each square. And it's a stream of consciousness letter to each person. Um, And in that series, when I started that series, it was very much all about family issues, isolation, religious trauma. I was raised in a a very strict religion that I'm no longer a part of, and it's caused a lot of issues and separation uh, within the family. And so I was feeling, you know, obviously pretty bad about that when I started the series. And so a lot of it was just getting that emotion out into the painting and, and writing that message into each piece. And it really helped. Uh, by the end of the series, I, I felt a lot of healing and I kind of viewed the whole scenario with a, a different perspective, with a more loving perspective. 
And I've never reread the message. It was all stream of consciousness. However, and it's all specific to that person and myself and our relationship. I do want to save a bit of time to also talk about your music, which you describe as dark indie folk ballads that speak of both loss and hope and all the things that life is made of. And I'd love to listen to a clip of a song from the title track from your 2018 album called How Does It Feel? Tell us a little bit about this track and then we'll take a listen. Sure. This is a song about love about loss and the peculiar dynamic for me specifically was about past relationships, current relationships and how we tend to be very much in love with someone. And then when that relationship ends, it's, it's a curious dynamic if that love continues or it ends. Okay. Well, here it is. How does it feel by Of Tree? Hey, Your music and your art feel very interwoven with each other to me. In what ways do your art and music inspire each other? Do you listen to your music while you paint or do you look at your portraits while you compose? Is there a, is there a crossover between them? They're very interlaced, actually. I don't necessarily like listen to my music unless I'm like, well, I'm painting unless I'm like listening to a mix or for recording or something like that. So sometimes I will, but in general, each one feeds the other for inspiration. Like if, if I'm in the studio a lot painting and it can take a lot of energy out. And so when I sit down and play guitar, it really feeds that, uh, you know, it feeds the soul. It feeds that painting inspiration and vice versa. They, they just kind of both feed each other. If I'm, you know, if I'm feeling whether it's a little bit flat, whether writing music or painting, each one definitely inspires the other. For me, it's, it's integral to, to have both, to keep each other going. 
Well, my guest for this act of the show has been Kansas City-based artist and musician Benjamin Parks. You can see his large-scale portraiture on his website, benjaminparks.info. And if you are curious about the music of his band, Of Tree, go to ofTreeMusic.com. Ben, thank you so much for making time to chat about your work today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am always envious of people who grew up knowing what they wanted to be or do as an adult. People who are fully committed to a particular passion and then pursue it without doubt or vacillation. Fibre and mixed media artist Joe Steely knew by the age of 10 that art was her future. She just didn't know how that would manifest itself until she got to college. But it is a passion that took her to the pinnacle of a teaching career as professor of the Fibre Art Programme at the University of Missouri and the founding director for its School of Visual Studies. Her art has taken her all over the world as an exhibitor, a lecturer and a curator. And today her work is in many private and public collections, including the National Portrait Gallery at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. At heart, Joe is an explorer. As a child exploring the hills and creeks around her family's farm on the outskirts of St. Louis and exploring the traditions of needlework passed down through multiple generations of the women in her family. And as an adult, an explorer of volume, space and texture into which she incorporates her spiritual connection with nature, mundane domestic moments and reflections of her own interpersonal relationships. Her work encompasses basketry and sculptured paper, vessels made of handmade paper, installations and strata made from gathered leaves and sculptural books designed to be read visually all of which seduce the viewer to reach out and touch the work. For the next 15 minutes, we get her all to ourselves. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Joe. Thank you, Diana. What a wonderful introduction. I'm humbled. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. It's all you. <laughs> I like to imagine the child Joe ambling along creek beds and creating Andy Goldsworthy style ephemeral nature sculptures from twigs and rocks. Was that the case or were you just catching fish? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that that's a habit that I developed as a child that continues even until today. We were hiking yesterday. Right now I'm in Pennsylvania and we went to Ricketts Glen yesterday to hike. And as we're walking along the river there, we saw a few examples of other folks who can't resist altering the landscape and what they're finding in nature. And one of those little spirits that does the same thing. I just am so entranced with what nature provides and the inspiration it gives me as an artist. Well, talk a little bit about that, how you commune with the natural world through your art. Oh, gosh, I don't know if there's actually words for that. It's more of a feeling that I get. It makes me feel more centered. And um, I can look at the way a space is between two tree branches or the way that tree bark has grown like a burl in a tree or a grapevine in the way that you have these incredible line drawings in space. And it just seems to inform aspects of my personal life, but also how I want to manifest my feeling about being in nature and what I'm observing through the work itself that I'm producing. 
do you feel successful in that? Like which of your many, many works do you feel best encompasses that feeling that you have about nature? I don't know that there's one particular piece that I personally feel is the most successful. I think that every time I create a new piece, there's aspects of it that I feel are really successful and aspects that maybe could be worked in another way to be more successful. But I think that's part of what the creative impulse is about. If I made the perfect piece, why would I need to make anything again? (laughs) (laughs) I think that 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 notion of exploration that you talked about in your introduction is really important to me. It's like, it's that sense of, what if I tried this? What if I tried that? Could I get at this idea better if I did it this way or if I did it that way? And every object that I create is an experiment in in exploring that what if, that possibility of just seeing what could happen and going from there, which inspires the next piece. There is an ancient Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which has layers of meaning, but it's often used with art to embrace the idea of imperfection, of the transitory nature of everything, about the value of the veneer that time gives to people and objects. And that's something that we should venerate and not try and hide. How much is that philosophy involved with your work? I think it's integral. It's integral to my life and the way that I live my life. (laughs) You know, because nothing's ever perfect. And so celebrate that imperfection and allow it to be part of who we are. And yes, there's always an element of surprise in my work. And I think that one of the things that I've always been fascinated about in my work is how can I put that element of surprise in there? Because I think that that is what pulls a viewer in to want to become a little more involved in what they're seeing and experiencing in the work. So as an example, in uh, many of the, the sculptural pieces that I do, the artist books, there are things that draw you to the inside and reveal some anomalous moment. And um, it is exactly that. It's about that wabi-sabi and, and the um, interest that imperfection can provide in life and in, in a creative process. You started out as a ceramicist and a weaver, but by the 1980s, you were fully embracing the worlds of basketry, contemporary basketry and papermaking. What lured you into these new worlds? I think that there were a couple of things. I happened to begin my teaching career at the college level in the 1980s, and I was starting to teach fiber classes, and I wanted to expand my own ability to teach different processes. And I happened to take a paper-making workshop and a basket-making workshop within a few months of one another. And I realized that everything that I was trying to do with my clay work, as well as with my weaving, could be brought together 
through paper making and basketry techniques. And it just launched a path that I have been on ever since. Basket making has evolved hugely over the past 50 years. And I love the idea that uh, you wrote this somewhere. Basket makers are explorers, explorers of ideas within the context of containing space or volume. And I'm curious what some of your exploration aha moments have been in that world of creating space and volume? I think of basketry in a variety of ways. And you captured that by talking about it as a container of space. If you think about a bird nest, those were the very first baskets because they were weaving these nests. And when we think about that, we think about a sense of home, a sense of safety, And then think about a tree and how the hollow of a tree is also a container of space. And it is often um, a protective environment for another animal form or uh, a life form of some sort. And women are vessels. We we bear children. And so we become a type of nest for the birthing of children. And so all of those ideas of how we enwrap ourselves in environments where we feel safe and protected, but also define who we are became part of what I was interested in in my own sculpture work, using basketry as a reference. And that idea of home and women and domesticity is another component which alongside nature you really embrace in your work this idea of mundane domesticity explain a little what you mean by that and how you illustrate those moments in your art home is very important to me family is very important to me and we go through our daily lives without really thinking very much about the rituals that we embark upon daily and I'm aestheticizing them in a way and asking viewers to look at the way that we put the items on a shelf or the way that we arrange a closet or the role an apron plays or has played historically in working in the kitchen or working in your workshop to protect yourself. I'm using those objects as a means to think about celebrating how we live every day. And thinking about those aprons, I mean, you have aprons that are made of gathered leaves. And I'm curious how you work with those leaves, because they seem, when you think about a dried leaf out in nature, it feels very... Um, well, very ephemeral, like it's just going to crumble in your hand and disappear. How do you take these leaves and and give them a permanence? What do you do to make them last in your art? So I think that the leaf is something that has become important to me as a material that really speaks to that idea of being a fugitive element, but yet has the strength and permanence and the longevity in the same way that we think about skin of our, on our bodies. And 
the way that I process those leaves is the way that I process all plant materials for the paper making process. I cook it in a caustic solution and then rinse it really well. And over time, I have learned that different leaves require different cooking times and different processing in order to achieve the color and the textural elements that I'm looking for. And they just become a material then that I can incorporate into these objects that I'm making. And and the aprons have been one of the primary elements that I've used those leaves for. And then in some of my more recent work, I'm actually creating these large wall panels that are referencing the landscape itself. And I think of them more as drawings and paintings uh, in the way that I'm utilizing those materials. You write about seducing the viewer to reach out and touch. Do you really want us to reach out and touch your work? Well, I think it depends on the location where you're viewing the work. If you're in a museum, you're going to get your hands (laughs) up. (laughs) If you're in my studio, you have permission to touch. and And I will actually, when I'm doing talks with folks in exhibitions, I will actually pick up a work and pass it around so that they can touch it. Because I recognized early in my career that there's something very provocative about the way that I use paper that it it really asks you to touch it. And so that has just become part of the work as I've continued on my journey, that it's okay with me if you touch it. And it's more of an immersive experience if you can not only look at something, but touch it and feel it and experience it with multiple senses. Well, to explore the many artistic worlds of Jo Steely and read more about her influences, visit her website at joesteely.com. And Jo, always a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for finding the time to chat all the way from Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Diana. I look forward to seeing you back in Missouri. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, singer-songwriter Mick Bird, jewellery designer and fashion artist Yoro Newson painter and musician Benjamin Parks, and fibre and mixed media artist Joe Steely. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!